Hello, everybody. You're listening to Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live. This is Alistair Cross, and I'm here with my co-host and collaborator, Tamara Thorne. Stay tuned, because tonight we're going to be talking vampires and damned good books with a Shirley Jackson award-winning author. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. We'd like to thank W.J. Pierce for creating and performing that wonderful piece of music you just heard. Good evening, and welcome to Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live. We're your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. Thank you for joining us. Tonight, we're talking with Glenn Hirschberg, who received his B.A. from Columbia University and his M.A. and M.F.A. from the University of Montana. His first novel, The Snowman's Children, was a Literary Guild featured selection. His collection, The Two Sands, won three International Horror Guild Awards and was named Best Book of the Year by Publishers Weekly. Hirschberg has won the Shirley Jackson Award and been a finalist for the World Fantasy and the Bram Stoker Awards. Uh, thank you for joining us. And before I turn the time, before we introduce Glenn, I'm going to turn the time over to my collaborator and co-host, Tamara Thorne, who's going to tell you a little bit about Glenn's latest book, which is the second in the Motherless Children's Trilogy, and it's called Good Girls. Yeah. Um, this is... Uh, re- re- blah. Let's see if I can talk tonight. Um, okay. <laughs> I think you're <laughs> surprised the music left. worked. I think you're surprised I the music I am worked. very surprised. I just about <laughs> said a dirty word. I was so surprised. Um, <laughs> I was tripped up. Too. Oh, that would be shocking. I know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> time International Horror Guild and Shirley Jackson Award winner Glenn Hirschberg brings his flair for the grim, grisly, and emotionally harrowing to this standalone sequel to Motherless Child. Reeling from the violent death of her daughter and a confrontation with the Whistler, the monster who wrecked her life, Jess has fled the South for a tiny college town in New Hampshire. There, she huddles in a fire-blackened house with her crippled lover, her infant grandson, and the creature that was once her daughter's best friend and may or may not be a threat. Rebecca, a college student orphaned in childhood, cares for Jess's grandson and finds in Jess's house the promise of a family she has never known, but also a terrifying secret. Meanwhile, unhinged and unmoored, the whistler watches from the rooftops and awaits his moment, and deep in the Mississippi Delta, the evil that spawned him. That is so cool. Don't. I would love to. Can I hire you to ride my to to read my intros from now on? That was awesome. <laughs> as long as as long as I get to go dun 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 at the end, then yeah. yeah. If you can make the music work, that's all good. Yeah, exactly. it worked just for you. Yeah. Yes, it did. It did. It knew you were coming. 
So yes, uh, ladies, yes, ladies and gentlemen, here's we are here with Glenn Hirschberg, and um, before we get into to good girls, I want to talk. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your um, experience, your your journey to publication, where you come from? In uh, with this series, or, or from the beginning? Just from the beginning. Well, I um, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was two. And fiction writing was always the dream, but uh, I started out, actually, my first publications out of grad school were, were as a critic and as a music critic, especially. I was um, a critic for the Seattle, a music critic for the Seattle Weekly, right as that whole scene was breaking, and so I got to be part of that world, which was fun for a little while, um, and was honing my writing skills and working on novels, and I spent... Uh, most of my 20s after grad school, I'd sold a few stories and uh, was figuring I'll just write a novel and you know, I'll publish that pretty quickly. And it turns out to be hard writing novels. And I um, <laughs> took me four or five tries before I got one. And I, it, I knew it was going to be the one, but before I finally wrote The Snowman's Children and realized, okay, that's how you do at least that book. But in the meantime, <laughs> there was the big surprise. Um, which is I'd loved horror all my life, but I had never really considered writing it. And I don't know why, I just hadn't. And um, in my career as a critic, I had done some reviews for uh, Ashtree Press's uh, little Canadian publisher of excellent, uh, mostly reprints of old classic ghostly tales. Um, They had a journal called All Hallows, and I was doing some reviews for them. And meanwhile, I was teaching, and I'd started telling my students ghost stories on Halloween. And the sixth or seventh year of doing that, um, when I got in trouble because some kids had started ditching class to come to my class to hear the ghost story, (laughs) um, I I finished the ghost story, got called to the office, and bawled out that really you didn't notice these kids who weren't in your class were in your room. And I really didn't because the lights were out, and I was into it and having a good time. Uh-huh. Um, and as I came out of the office, one of the students to whom I had just told the story said, you know, Hirschberg, you really might want to consider writing that one down. And I thought, went home, wrote a story called Mr. Dark's Carnival, which turned out to be an absolutely useless length, you know, 68 pages. What do you do with that? It's not a book. No magazine on earth will publish it. So I, great. That was fun. Um, and the only thing I could think, even just to get some feedback on it, was to send it to uh, Barbara and Christopher Roden, who run Ashtree Press, and just ask them to take a look at it. They didn't really – I didn't expect – I was just asking them to look at it. So this will never uh-huh. happen again in my life. It's the easiest sale I have ever or will ever have. I sent – I said – they said, I wrote this thing. It's a useless length. Would you just take a look at it and tell me if it's any good? They wrote back and said, sure, why don't you email us the story? I did, and uh, two hours later, you know, Christopher's British and reserved. I got back an email that said, we'll take it. That's it. Um, (laughs) And that came out in a little Canadian hardback, 600 copies. I don't know how anybody saw it, but really fast, it got picked up for some of the best of the year anthologies, and it got nominated for the World Fantasy Award, and all wow. of a sudden, my inbox is full of invitations for ghost story anthologies. And 
my publisher who had been mulling my first book, The Snowman's Children, and trying to decide what the heck kind of book it was. Because, as my brother describes it, it's To Kill a Mockingbird meets Silence of the Lambs. Um, <laughs> I, while they were trying to figure out what to do with it, that happened, and that, I'm convinced, is why my publisher bought the book and set me on this path. And basically what I found, horror is not the only thing I write, but I think I do my best work in horror, and I have no idea why that is. But it seems to keep <laughs> me disciplined, on task, and I like it a lot, and I think I do. I think I do good work that way. And so that was really how I got started. And everything has flown from there. Nice. So, well, nice. and you're really you're really good at uh, at, at horror, by the way. Um, yeah. We yeah we we both agree. And uh, <laughs> and uh, you have a really, you know, you seem to have uh, an instinctive uh, understanding of how to do the quiet horror and, and, and when, when to pull the punches and when to hit hard. And that's actually, you know, I think that that is an instinct thing. Did you read a lot of horror or watch a lot of I horror did. growing up? I that, did. Yeah. I, I, I mean, all my life. Um, and a lot of different kinds. I think I started reading Ramsey Campbell when I was about nine years old. I can still see the edition. I don't know how I wound up with that paperback or what my parents were thinking. Uh-huh. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, and it scared the crap out of me. But I started at a very young age. I started reading that, and um, mm-hmm. you know, have formative experiences. I still remember uh, taking The Shining after watching. We were staying at at my grandmother's little tiny condominium in Florida, and I remember waking up in the middle of the night and looking. We were sleeping in double beds across from each other, looking across this <laughs> living room at my mom at like 3.30 in the morning, sitting up in bed with this absolutely petrified look on her face and her fingers grasping the paperback of The Shining. I don't know if you remember, if you've seen this cover. with no, It's silver and with the kid with no face. I have face. that one, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, so it's really a disturbing yeah. cover. <laughs> and I remember just lying there watching her fingers and thinking, don't touch the face, don't touch the face. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is a scary face. Yeah. That's and scarier so I than think something I've gross. loved it all my life, and I love, you know, I love being scared, but I also love the weird beauty and poetry of it. I always have. And mm-hmm. so I don't know why it didn't occur to me that that might really be the best use of whatever it is I've got. Um, but I have scared. really enjoyed writing it since I started. Well, see, and I think that's interesting because that seems to be a pretty – uh, typical thing. I uh, uh, myself, I actually never set out to write horror. I didn't know I wrote horror until the publisher told me this is horror, and, <laughs> and then I thought, there okay, you go. I'm a horror writer. Yeah. Fine, whatever. Well, but I just funny because I you read guys, Hill House. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Having, you know, not too long ago, read and thoroughly enjoyed uh, Ghosts of Raven Ravencrest that you two did. Oh, thanks. And, you know, I've been, uh, uh, Tamara and I uh, have exchanged books for a while. And oh, we've gone back a ways, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, you know, it's, in retrospect, it all seems very natural, doesn't it? And it makes me feel mm-hmm. kind of dumb anyway, like, well, yeah, this would be something you should try. But it really, yeah. like you, it literally hadn't occurred to me until someone suggested I do it. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. It's just, it's one of those things, like, I knew... You know, pretty early on, I wanted to be a writer, and I didn't even really seem to notice 
that everything I wrote was so dark and yeah. scary or whatever. I just wrote and didn't think about it. But yeah, I think it's yeah. just a, a yeah. natural thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, no, we're all we're all relatively but, cheerful people. It wouldn't, exactly. Well, it wouldn't, it's easy like, to be cheerful when you're a horror writer because you get to kill things on pages every day. I think that's true. I do yeah, think that's I true. I do. I, I think I learning how learning how to dance with the dark, with the mm-hmm. terrible things that really are you know part of living, is really a yeah. good key to living well. It yeah. is. Destroy your enemies and get away from real life. <laughs> or, you know, turn fun. real life into the life you want it to be. Exactly. exactly. And I also, think, <laughs> I also think, and I don't know if this is true in any other cases, this is only true in, in I'm only speaking for myself here, but I also think that uh, I've always kind of had a short attention span. And, <laughs> yeah, and like horror, you know, because it's scary and it, it's it's hard hitting and it's fast. I think that might be part of it for you know for me too. Do you do you have a short attention span, Glenn? I don't. <laughs> I, I think I have a long attention span, but I think really? that I also have a deep-seated appreciation for story. Um, right. That that I believe we all read because there is this absolutely primal human impulse to tell each other about our existence and. Yeah. I I believe that part of what makes a story, and I know that in the literary establishment right now there's a real argument about this, but I believe that pretending that there can be, you know, uh, as we talked about the last time I was on, Sturgeon's Law and all, I'm not a subscriber to any one theory, but in general I think that incident and things that, that actually make you want to read, that's part of reading. And that the joy of reading isn't something you should outgrow. You shouldn't read because it's good for you. You should read because it makes your life happier. It makes the days better. Oh, yeah. Right. And so horror, yeah. I, I, have a, I, I would say I have a long attention span, but I would also say I have a short, I have a, a, a quick trigger finger on stuff where I start to get that feeling where there's nothing actually going on here. This isn't going to be about right. anything. We're not going anywhere. And I'm just supposed to, you know, watch these people. And at best, what I'm going to get is a moment of recognition where I think, huh, yeah, I'm kind of like that. You know, to me, what, yeah. a, what, a, yeah. what a waste of good art. Right, what right. What a waste of talent yeah. to only do that. Yeah, totally, totally true. <laughs> so we, we need to get into Good Girls. Um, uh, Chamber and I have both read it. We also read uh, uh, Motherless Child, which is uh, – these are really um, interesting. They're vampire novels, but it's it, it's a very yeah. interesting kind of take on it. And actually, as a matter of fact, before we start getting into that, uh, why don't we do a reading? Sure. How would you um, feel about doing the honors? <laughs> I, I'm I'm uh, so there are a lot of different threads in this novel, and. Um, I thought about offering you one that would need no introduction at all. But there are also a lot of different um, tones in the book that I think it is happy and sad and frightening and funny and gross at times. And um, so I wanted to pick a passage that gave a sense of that. 
And so uh, despite a few spoilers, most of which Tamara has already spoiled for you by reading the introduction to this book, (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd picked picked uh, this passage. So very briefly, here's what you need to know. Um, Natalie and Sophie, this is in Motherless Child, Natalie and Sophie, lifelong best friends and single moms, uh, have a terrifying encounter with a monster known as the Whistler, and they wake up from that changed. And a lot of Motherless Child is about the two of them trying to adjust to their new hungers, their fearsome new abilities, and the consequences their new way of living is going to have for themselves and everyone they know, including their children, and Natalie's sort of fireball of a resilient, pragmatic mom whose name is Jess and who is really kind of a mother to both of them. At the end of Motherless Child, there's a climatic climactic battle on the beach and I'm actually I'm not spoiling the biggest things there but I will tell you that um, Natalie and Sophie's infant son uh, whose name is George William but she calls him Rue they don't survive but Jeff and Sophie do Um, although Sophie in somewhat uh, truncated form meaning she's she's missing her legs for most of the right so This scene that I'm going to read you takes place roughly 24 hours later. And basically, against her better judgment, Jess has rescued the stump of Sophie from the beach. And they are traveling together up the the coast with companions and with the bodies of their respective children wrapped together in the trunk. They pull off the freeway and they head into the Maryland woods. And way back in the woods, they come across an abandoned-seeming construction site. And there's a wheelbarrow and a tarp and some tools, and Jess decides this is as good a place as any to say goodbye to her daughter. So in this scene, Jess and Sophie, this is a stump of Sophie, both grieving, though very possibly in very different ways and for different things, both furious, both in significant physical distress, in di- distress both deeply and correctly distrustful of the other, and full of a sense of, a mor- of mortal betrayal, set off together to bury Natalie. So that's where I'm picking up. All right. Um, mostly on this final trip, the last she would ever take with her daughter, Jess sang to herself, the trees, the bodies, and the tarp. The songs were the ones she'd sung to Natalie, and also the ones Natalie had sung to her. She didn't keep track, and in some cases couldn't even remember which was which anymore. Jess had never affixed songs to memories the way Natalie had. Natalie was more like her father that way. Jess just sang. Found a peanut, both sides now. That whiny newer one, teenage Natalie, had always walked around crooning about being human and needing to be loved like everyone else does. Everyone else does. When the woodpeckers knocked, she stopped singing and listened to them, let her daughter listen to them. Do you hear? She whispered. At which exact instant did Jess forget about Sophie? It didn't matter, she would decide later, when she made herself go over and over those next moments. What mattered was that she had forgotten. She had let herself love and grieve and break and hum, and so she got caught completely by surprise when Sophie dropped from the low branches of the black cherry tree she'd scurried up like a spider or a bobcat and landed on Jess's back and sent her shrieking and sprawling. The wheelbarrow tilted forward and the tarp with Natalie's corpse in it tipped halfway out, actually propping the barrow in position. Incredibly, 
Jess got her hands down, even as her wrapped ribs crunched together, and Sophie didn't have her balance right either. She landed farther forward on her stumps than she'd meant to, and that allowed Jess at least to roll over onto her back before Sophie scrambled over and squatted on Jess's stomach, her hands grabbing Jess's wrists and pinning her arms to the root-riddled dirt. If she'd been sure her body was still capable of bending, Jess probably could have bucked Sophie off, although the grip in those fingers was ferocious. But in the moment, with this hell thing atop her, Jess couldn't think of a single reason to do that. Sophie leaned down. Her round, freckless face hovered over Jess's blank and gigantic and remote as the moon. Her raccoon eyes sparkled in the dark. When she spoke, the air she moved, it wasn't an exhalation, just air with sound riding it, stank. But Jess couldn't have said of what, although what occurred to her in the instant was emptiness. Just what, Sophie said, were you thinking to do with my rue? You want the truth, Jess managed, as her own breathing slowed, quieted. The fact that she was still breathing almost seemed the perfect defiant response, the most perfect defiant response she could make. The awful truth, because it was awful, no matter what Sophie had become or might have become or was on her way to becoming. The truth is, I wasn't thinking of your rue at all. Well, I was, and I want him. You want him. Sophie nodded. Jess's smile felt more barbed and vicious than any she had ever aimed at anyone. She'd never even imagined such a smile could fit on her face. Sure, hon. And with that, she pushed Sophie off. She was only a little surprised that Sophie let her. She gestured at the wheelbarrow. Help me get this thing up. Together, Jess tugging the handle while Sophie pushed from the ground at the tarp with Natalie's body, which was holding Sophie's ruse body, wrapped in it. They righted the barrow. Wincing and gasping with every step, Jess pushed it over the top of the little hill, up to the edge of the patch of soft dirt she'd found between two yards-long ridged roots of the giant sweet gum tree. Then she let everything fall sideways and the tarp thumped out onto the ground. Now help me unroll it. They did that together. The second Natalie's body appeared, Jess bent forward, ignoring the pain. With surprisingly little pressure or effort, she freed the little bundle from Natalie's arms. A gentle tilt, a push on the tiny backside, and the baby was free of Natalie's grip, as easy as sliding a record out of a sleeve. Straightening, grunting as her tortured ribs rang, Jess cradled the bundle one last time. This boy had been hers, too, briefly, after all. He'd been hers at least a little bit all his too short life. A tiny part of her wondered why Sophie hadn't already ripped him from her hands. Jess wouldn't have faulted her for that. But when she looked up, Sophie was just watching, waiting, with her arms out and her lips flat, and no expression Jess knew in her eyes. Here you go, she whispered to George William, to his mother, and held out the child. Sophie snatched him away and clutched him to her breast. Now I'll stop there. Wow. I'll stop. I want to hear more. I know. <laughs> you just keep going. Oh, you're a good reader. <laughs> well, thanks. That's not surprising. Yeah. Well, good. I, you know, I, uh, I knew it was going to take a little more intro than I ideally like to do to read that scene, but felt like the right, the right little snippet to share. It's wonderful. Yeah. I love that scene. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I I liked writing that scene, although it was also very tricky to put together. There's a lot going on there. It took a long time. Um, Before we go any further, I just want to take a moment to uh, remind the listeners that uh, you are tuned in to Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live, and we're your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. You can learn more about what we do at our website, alistaircross.com and tamarathorne.com. You can visit our mutual blog at thorningcross.wordpress.com 
where we're doing all kinds of new fun things, such as the uh, Goblet of Shock, which is a uh, hard rock band review series by uh, an author and uh, reviewer, Michael Aronovitz, as well as uh, what we're calling Menage Talk, which we just uh, did our first post today, which is a a place for uh, readers and writers to go. Uh, They can read about uh, the ins and outs of writing and what inspired writers and uh, right now we're uh, doing it with Jay Bonansinga, who is the author of the Walking Dead series. And uh, uh, part one has gone up there. It'll it'll keep going until we get tired or <laughs> schedules don't allow. Well, that is, that's out. great yeah. stuff. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we'd love to have you next. I, I think we're doing yes. like three parters. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. So I don't well, know. Let, me, let me know when you need me. That sounds, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that's yeah. uh we're just still kind of filling our way. But, yeah, so that is at thornycross.wordpress.com. Uh, also, if anybody tweets, our handle is at thorncross, and you can visit us on Facebook, and be sure to give our Haunted Nights live page a like. Uh, for more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, or at authorsontheair.com. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. And yes, Glenn, we would absolutely love to have you on where I'm not sure how many we're doing or what where we're going, but we just thought it would be kind yeah. of fun. And, it, and, it's, and it's really cool because, you know, we, we talk to a lot of writers um, and we learn so many things. It's amazing how many, yeah. how many, how different it is from writer to writer. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I'm always fascinated by that, that those, those commonalities. Um, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. And I think people enjoy reading yeah. about that. Yeah. Yes. So we we, that would be great. Oh, go ahead. What's that? Oh, we'll have you next, Glenn, if you're up for it. That would be Let awesome. me know when. Okay. All right. We, we absolutely. <laughs> yes, we will. Um, I want to talk a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about uh, this 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 series, the the, the motherless children yeah. series. Um, what? actually originally inspired this this i uh, this series is another weird accident to be honest um the uh i may have told you this before but the short version is um a long time ago like probably 10 years ago now um ellen datlow was putting together a vampire anthology and um wrote and asked did i want to contribute and haughty young dork that I was, I wrote back and I said something along the lines of, I don't do vampire stories. And, <laughs> you know, 12 hours later, of course, Natalie and Sophie were in my head, fully formed and chattering away. And within two weeks, I had produced a story called Like Lick'em Sticks, Like Tina Fey, um, wrote Ellen back and I got my comeuppance don't worry because I wrote Ellen back and said hey it turns out I do write vampire stories and she basically wrote back and said that's nice you're not writing it for me because that anthology isn't a go right now but good luck with it um, <laughs> so anyway that did eventually come out as part of the Rolling Darkness review the live show that I that I have done with Pete Atkins um, for about 12 years now um and then a year or so went by, and literally this is the only time this has ever happened to me, this corny thing where I woke up 
in the middle of the night knowing what happened both five minutes after and five minutes before the story I had written. And uh-huh. Motherless Child especially, I feel like was was my reward for you know writing almost every day of my life since I was two years old. It came to me whole. I will never again have an experience that easy of writing wow. a book. Wow. And so I wrote that, and it came out with um, with Earthling, the wonderful Paul, uh, small press that uh, Paul Miller runs. And uh, then it got some lovely reviews and uh, picked up some readers, and eventually Jim Frankel and then Melissa Singer uh, acquired it for tour and uh, did a mass market edition. And when they bought it, uh, Jim said, we want to buy a trilogy. Uh, and I, uh, you can probably guess my response, which I'm pretty sure was exactly these words, I don't write vampire trilogies. <laughs> <laughs> and this time, by dinner, I had this idea about what I could do that would actually be really fun. Now, Good Girls did not come as easily, which I you know, have long since learned doesn't make it better or worse. It just... It was more typical of my writing process, where I really had to wrestle with it. But the characters in these books, I have really wound up becoming very attached to. And so I, it hasn't been hard at all, and it has been a joy to keep going. And even now, I'm coming up on halfway through the last book, and not only are, and I, I do know where the ending is going to be, but not only are events still surprising me from time to time, but the tone keeps shifting on me um, in really in ways that I'm finding really delightful. Not in like I don't know what I'm doing way, I hope, but in a there's another layer here, and I, right. I keep following it. And, I mean, I, I had what I thought was a great title for the third book, and now I've got a different one because – the title I originally had, it's a good title for something, but this book has become something else. And right. so we'll see where it winds up. But that's the, that's the story of it, at least as of today. It continues to excite me, that's for sure. I may right. never do it again. Right. I don't write trilogies. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know that Glenn Hirschberg guy. He, the one that doesn't write trilogies. Right. That's how we, that's, yeah. Yeah. He wrote a trilogy. <laughs> right. Oh, that's funny. Now, it can is you tell us anything about the third one? Or it- well, here's what I'll tell you. Um, I don't want to say too much. It always feels like bad luck. And like I said, these books are still surprising me, so anything I say now cannot be used against me, and you may never actually see it in book form. <laughs> but um, all I will say is it takes place five years later um, across the country that many – the survivors of the first two books are crucial in uh, the, are, are the center of the last book. Um, and if it gives you any idea of what what the tone shifts are doing, I started out. Um, Natalie, especially, was a huge music lover, and music is very much a part of the whole trilogy. Um, she loved southern uh, roots music, and gospel, and folk music, and uh, deep blues and all that kind of stuff. And so, Motherless Child, that title came from the old, you know, uh, 
African-American spiritual. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Um, this new, this last book takes place in the Pacific Northwest. Um, the, the, the new characters in good girls are very different girls than Natalie and Sophie were. Uh Um, and their musical interests are, are more current and they are sort of swept up a little bit in the riot girl movement in the Northwest. And so I, I knew I wanted to do something playing with a lyric from a Sleater Kinney song, if you know them. Um, so I had a title, Nothing to Devour, which is from a line of theirs. Uh, oh, nice. Let me see if I can get it exactly right. We can drain out all the power, steal from the makers who unmade us, leave them nothing to devour. And I thought, that's, gonna, that's it. That's, that's the title I wanted. Well, that is a good and, title. <laughs> I, I think so too. I mean, it's not going to be the title of this, but maybe I can use it for something right. because the book has changed, and I wound up turning towards as the book changed on me and developed a different flavor. Um, I happened I was playing an older Sleater Kinney record and happened across this line, and when the body finally starts to go, let it go all at once, not piece by piece, but like a whole bucket of stars. And a whole bucket of stars is what I am currently calling the last book. But we'll I see. Love we'll yeah. see. Well, I, I like them both. And that's interesting. You, you mentioned music, and when we uh, uh, the, the collaboration that we're working on together right now, we decided to put a kind of playlist in it. There's the Motherless Children series have a playlist? I started to do it. I, not only that, um, I don't know if you know the blog, Large Hearted Boy. It's sort of a music and the music and book culture blog. But they have a kind of a fun uh, column, guest column, that they have authors write uh, called Book Notes, where the author sort of develops a playlist and writes about the songs that either they were hearing in their head as they wrote the book or that play a role in the book. So I wrote a Book Notes column for Large Hearted Boy, and was assembling a Spotify list. Um, and as I started to write that blog post, realized that I think the blog post is only six songs long. I had another 10, and I was on page 12. Uh, and oh, realized yeah. that the, the Spotify playlist just for Motherless Child would probably be 900 songs long. Like it really <laughs> is absolutely central. Not that it doesn't directly quote any. I just feel like there really was a beat in the back of that book and that the music is central to these girls' lives and it was central to getting it written. And so I'm trying to stay true to that. So I I have started a Spotify playlist for Motherless Child. I will never finish it. <laughs> <laughs> but it would yeah. be great if someone – it could be if, – if I have fans that obsessive, it would be a great gift someone could give me to go through and assemble that playlist. <laughs> nice. Because <laughs> I'd love to listen to it. It would be a great list. Yeah. <laughs> Natalie has really good taste. <laughs> it's so much well, fun. So you fun. listen to music while you write. I do listen to music yeah. while I write, although not that music. What do you um, listen to? Mostly... Um, I, I, you know, I hear all these stories and I admire it, you know, like Stephen King writes to Metallica and you know, that kind of stuff. I uh-huh. write to um, pretty still, but a little bit barbed or disconcerting 
the new electronic music or semi-classical music. I like stuff that I, I, you know, I have a full-time job. I'm a parent of two kids, and so I try to write every day. But to do it, I have to sort of drop into my trance fast when I have the time. Yeah. And so the music is one of those cues I've given myself where I hear that and I just go to the writing place. Oh, smart. I can't fall asleep. I spider on my phone and it puts me right out. I can't play spider (laughs) anywhere. It'll put me to sleep now. I will tell you, there's a there's a wonderful English composer named Richard Skelton, um, who produces the best writing music of the kind I've described that I know. It's oh. just beautiful, weirdly harrowing stuff, and it sets a mood, but it isn't invasive. You can sit and listen to it, but even if you do, you're going to wind up drifting in it, not because oh, you're bored, nice. because it really takes you places. Do you so. listen to music that has lyrics, or is just music? No, I can't. Do you? Can you? No, no, uh-uh. no. That's, a, that's no what I was. Hear. Yeah, I was thinking no, the I same can't. thing. I'm like, I can't. I've heard those stories about the writers that do that too, and I'm telling you, I just start writing down what I hear. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> or I if get it's lost. Like Birdie's Requiem, I can do it, but I don't understand yeah. the words, so it's okay. <laughs> I, I, I would find it's it easier, Dylan. honestly, to. I would find it easier to write in the middle of a bus terminal with a lot Much of conversations easier. going on around me that just blurred oh. than I would yeah. music because. That's like someone talking right yeah. to me. Right. If right, I'm writing exactly. alone, I turn the TV on. Well, not the TV. I turn Netflix on, and I'll put a movie like, oh, Tombstone or The Shining or right. anything I know by heart. And there that's fine. It covers up the cats and the street traffic and everything <laughs> else. But no words and music. I'll just get conductivitis, and that's it. Right. And exactly. even with classical music, I'll start conducting, but not as bad. If it, Classical music, if it moves too much, I, that doesn't help me either. Yeah, there there yeah. are pieces or movements or things that will do it, but I do need mostly the music for me. I do I love music, and it's not just a utilitarian thing for me. It does help me with mood and atmosphere, but a lot of what I use music for when I'm writing is just to create space. Yeah, yeah, that's create a bubble. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. When um, so now. I wanted to ask you, uh, so you agreed to do this, this, this trilogy and we've talked to, we've talked to, um, a lot of different authors who have varying, um, ideas and opinions on a series, uh, book series in, in the publishing climate as it is right now. Uh, a lot of them seem to be downsizing. Like you can't go as long, like two and three books is kind of the limit. Uh, what are your experiences and thoughts on book series and the current climate? Well, it's 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 interesting. I'm sure you, both of you, you've done series and you've also done standalone. As a matter of fact, there's a whole that word standalone is, I think, problematic in the marketing of this book. Interestingly, um, but I would say I, I think there's two different questions there. Really, there's the how does it feel to write one. And you know, and because and is that a marketing decision? And then there's the climate. And honestly, the climate is so weird right now. I mean, it's terrible as it usually is, but it's yeah. <laughs> particularly <laughs> counterintuitive and bizarre because what you say is right, unless your books are three thousand pages long each, in yes. which case um. you can write as many as you want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, like the fantasy market has gone 
if you look at the shelves, it's like three books per shelf because they're these gigantic tomes. And I read somewhere yeah. that you know George R. R. Martin is already, if you lined up, you know, Ice and Fire, right now you could walk across the English Channel on the pages. Yeah, pretty much. You know, in some ways, series are where it's at. But to be yeah. honest, um, I guess for me, I can only answer for myself. I'm, I'm, I'm always hesitant to comment on the climate because I think the climate is so in flux right now and publishing is so unpredictable and mostly hostile that anything yeah. I say, even if I'm right, will be out of date in five minutes. But what I would yeah. say is that I'm 49 years old. I have a good life. I have seven books out, have a readership. I, you know, I consider myself really lucky. And I have given up whatever impulse I have about trying to figure out how to game the system or figure out what the market wants. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing I will promise you is that the decision to write a vampire trilogy was not a marketing decision. I, I would like to think that yeah. although I am not a marketer by trade, I would like to think my instincts were good enough to know that by the time anyone asked me to do that, the vampire moment had happened. Like that was not a good marketing decision if that's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Um, And so I wrote it because I had an idea. Um, Right. And I think that honestly, for most writers, that's probably your best bet anyways. Have a good time, write something that you're having fun doing and that you think is good. And hopefully the market will find you. But, you know, what does that even yeah. mean anymore? Well, I know. Vampires, though, I've always, it's like every other year, vampires are in or out. Publishing yep. can never make such lines. So you want to write a vampire novel, do it. It'll be, by the time exactly. it comes out, it's going to be in. Oh, you know what? That, I think that's true. And I also think that um, it's one of those archetypes, like ghosts, mm-hmm. yeah. which I which I love, like zombies, which I don't. I'll never write a zombie novel, you know. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but I think there's a reason that these things won't die, and that yeah. they still there is there are layers. When I, you know, my vampires hopefully are. are I would like to think they are a fresh take on it, which doesn't mean that it's yeah. brand new or that I'm discarding everything about them. I think they're. They are almost like Jungian archetypes. There's something buried in us that is attracted yeah. to and really appalled by that idea. Right. Something that feasts on us and draws us at the same time. They're death, right. and you dance with death, and death is sexy if you're yeah, a vampire. Right. It really works. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so it turned out, you know, when I started to think about it, once that seed was planted, whatever it is in me that writes scary shit – thought, mm-hmm. you know what? Those are still scary shit. <laughs> and yeah. I found that I, I did have something to say about that that I had never imagined I did. So I want to write a book about uh, elf waves, uh, ultra-high frequency but, waves and how they affected people, the forgotten. But yeah, my oh, yeah. editor said, okay, but first give me something like a vampire novel. That sounds so science fiction. I didn't want to write a vampire novel at all. So <laughs> But then I did, and I got so caught up in it. We're about to do the sequel. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's mother. true. It's it's it's. I think yeah. that it, I think that you know basically what you said about it is the most you know uh, spot on because it is. I mean, I I 
have a vampire no- novel as well. And it, you know, it was an idea. It was an idea that went back, you know, many years. And, and you know, in those years that I was, uh, um, you know, working on it or whatever, right? You know, it was. Oh, it's 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 in. It's out. Oh, you better hurry and do it now. Oh, it's too right. late. Right. But it it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, there's there's no. there's an audience for it. And if the story, yeah. you know, I didn't really set out. I didn't really set out to write vampires either. I had a certain story I wanted to tell, and that was the best approach. Yep. Basically. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And honestly, I think that's the best approach for writing in general is, you know, write the book that you've got in you. Write the book you want to write. And I guess I do believe the climate is awful. It's always going to be awful. Oh. Uh, That, you know, trying to predict success, there are people who can do it, but most of them are not writers. Um, And I do – the one – positive thing i would say is i do think the good stuff tends to get found and last which doesn't mean it will make you rich or make your your name live eternally or anything like that i just think that people will read you eventually yeah some somewhere if your book is good i do i do i have found that to be true that most of the stuff i've run across that i thought was genuinely good has found its way to at least some readership Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, that's, and that's the best advice there is: write a damn good book. All right. <laughs> write a write yeah. a good book. <laughs> write what you love. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And while we're on vampires, we have to ask you about research that you did for vampires. You learned about vampire culture <laughs> and all yeah. kinds of interesting things. Let's talk about that. <laughs> well, um, it's interesting. I didn't do a lot of research about vampires. Number one, I've been reading horror all my life. I pretty much have got it, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm a historian about it or anything like that, but I know the rules that are flexible, and I know the rules that usually aren't, and I had an idea about that. But originally, when I wrote Motherless Child especially, what I was thinking was, this is a book about Natalie and Sophie. It's a book about these girls. The vampires are just, they're like cancer. They're the thing that you don't want to meet, but they're not... That's not the book. But Mm -hmm. The Whistler became this increasingly creepy. I started to think about, well, okay, so he's immortal. He's musically talented at at singing songs that approximate feelings he doesn't really have. Some people would say, like most artists, um, (laughs) he... (laughs) Um, who is he? What does he do with his days? What would he want? And that's what led me to, you know, the Whistler is is in Good Girls, and he's bad. But the thing that made him is worse. And that's where the research came in. Um, And there's this character named Aunt Sally, who I won't say a lot about except that I was trying to figure out not, you know, I don't want, didn't want to waste the time figuring out, well, medically, how does this happen? And, you know, how are they, I, I feel like it's one of those things, you don't want to hang a lamp there. There's no way, it's like time travel. There's no right. way to get that completely right. But the thing about what are they doing with their time? Where are they staying? How are they staying out of sight? That was interesting to me. And why did this start? And so I said the the... the the vampires, there aren't very many of them, 
but they're rooted in the Deep South. Um, whatever produced them has a lot to do um, with the sort of cross-section of, uh, you know, totally understandable and real African-American resentment, sense of betrayal, fury, and white hatred and racism. And somewhere in there is something so vile and horrible that it somehow produced what what I'm the kind of vampires I've got. And my favorite thing that I did the most research about was the way they're picking their victims, which involves a game, a real game that was played. It started in Chicago and spread through immigrant communities and through the post-Reconstruction South. And it was called Policy. And basically, it was sort of a lottery, but you picked your lucky numbers by dream interpretation. Um, and there were handbooks where that you could buy where, okay, I dreamed of cows and my cousin. And so you'd look up the dream about cows and cousins in this book, and it would tell you numbers to play. Um, and also it would give you an interpretation of the dream. And so basically Aunt Sally in my mythos, Aunt Sally is sort of the inventor of policy, and she invented it almost as a system of randomization so that she tells the vampires when it's time, when they're hungry, go get go to this town that we've discussed, picked by random, the fifth person on this street, go get that person. Um, and so there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no tracing, and in a weird way, there's no attachment, there's less guilt, there's, you know, whatever that is, if they feel guilt. Um, so I had a lot of fun incorporating esoteric dark history mm-hmm. into my vampire mythology but in terms of who the vampires are that i i really i just dreamed it i just uh, you know imagine tried uh, to imagine what that would be like well i have a question that's a little off the wall every time you say aunt sally i hear little richard singing is that huh. on the playlist <laughs> or not um the Aunt Sally, actually, that's that's great, and I wonder if that was somewhere in my head too. But the Aunt Sally, where I got her from, is actually if you if you Google around about policy, pretty soon you will come across. You can still get a copy. I'm holding it in my hand of this really disturbing, terrifying little little pamphlet called Aunt Sally's Policy Player's Dream Book. And there's a really kind of appalling picture of uh, a poor African-American woman in a scarf uh, and earrings looking like almost like a gypsy fortune teller holding up a, a sign that says 411-44, which was a particularly weird number combination. Um, and so the Aunt Sally in my book is not meant to be that woman. But that gave me the idea of this idea of, of uh, you know, there's something that really interested me about this sort of origin vampire being nice. a, a sort of riff on this Aunt Sally person. Um, and, you know, and her, her both wreaking vengeance and also in a weird, really disturbing kind of way creating a family. Yeah, if it helps, I didn't have that. Uh, I didn't connect them until we talked about music. And that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, it didn't come well, up when I read it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder if that was somewhere in my head, too. Um, 
But I love that connection. That's great. Yeah. 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 One thing one thing we definitely have to ask you about <clears throat> is you also do the Rolling Darkness review with uh Pierre Atkins, yep. who's also been a guest on our show and he's fantastic by the way. And uh yeah, so thank you for connecting us. He's great. He's great. But um well, first of all, tell us a little bit about what the Rolling Darkness review is and of course we want to know are you doing it this year? So the Rolling Darkness Review uh, was something that um, Dennis Etchison and Pete and I created together. And it really grew out of – there are different stories. Probably each of us would tell the story a little bit differently. Um, But at at its heart, all of us were sort of longing for an October Halloween season event that reminded us of all the good things about – ghost stories and watching scary movies on television as kids, but for adults. Um, you know, go, going to a party that wasn't, uh, you know, uh, either bobbing for apples at one end of the spectrum or uh, who can wear the shortest sexy nurse costume at the other end of the spectrum. Not that I have anything against either of those activities necessarily, but it we wanted a different kind of experience. Um, and we also, all of us, felt like most writers that we know are not good readers. And I know I certainly felt at the beginning of this, like I'm not a good reader in person. And and a lot of that is because I don't get to do it enough. And writers don't get out much, and they don't get much opportunity to have that experience of saying your words and actually seeing somebody respond, hopefully, you know, and which is such a gratifying experience. So we created this show with music, and um, uh, later on, Pete and I especially, once Dennis kind of retired from active duty, Pete and I started developing a framing play, and it became this kind of little multimedia event that tours up and down, uh, toured up and down the West Coast, and we got to do it at the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and it was basically just some horror writers having a great time doing Halloween the way we wished it was done the way we'd always wanted to see it done. So it is a tremendous amount of work um, <laughs> for, like like everything in writing, minimal reward, yeah. uh, <laughs> except in the joy of doing it and the joy we found in working together. Pete and I have become really good friends and I think huge appreciators of each other's work. I think Pete is, is you know, so gifted and frankly underrated in the horror community because he's so charming that people somehow don't notice how really, really scary and good and just smart his fiction is. Yeah. Um, but so the the answer to your final, your last question there, um, Alistair, is that we've put it on hiatus for the moment, not because we're killing it. I think there's hopes to do it again, but just from a feeling of, from a feeling of uh, we've done it ten years out of the last twelve. Um, the, the 10th anniversary shows this year. We used to be able to tour it, and people, you know, we, we found ways to put together funding and do that. That's much harder now. There are, you know, we're, there, we used to do it in bookstores. Now it's really a theater show. It's harder to set up funding for that. So really we were putting in you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of work, writing original stories, memorizing, doing props and casting and the whole thing, uh, 
and doing all of that for two shows in a 50-seat theater in Los Angeles, um, yeah. which were great and which we loved doing, and I'd, I'm not sorry about it one bit. But also both of us looked at it and thought, well, okay, but at least this year, um, I got this trilogy I got to finish. Pete's working on things. Let's, you know, my daughter's bat mitzvah was two weeks ago, um, and this is usually right when we start doing the serious work on it. Let's give it a rest for this year, maybe for a couple years, and then see where we are. I think both of us are imagining that there may well be another round, maybe many rounds. But I think it's it's on hiatus for the moment. But it's been a great thing, and I don't think either one of us want to see it dead forever. Well, it's a really no. great idea. I mean, we we yeah. you know we had you on uh, around Halloween, you and, and Pete, and that's how we yeah. met Pete. And uh, it, you know, this it's a really good idea because I mean, I'm I'm totally with you. I mean, I <clears throat> I love Halloween. I've always loved Halloween. It's really I remember distinctly though at about you know 20 years old feeling. Uh, sense of loss because it's like what do you what do you what do you do i mean because i'm because i'm with you i mean you you can't really go trick-or-treating i don't you know and i'm not really interested in going to to parties and getting drunk and dressing like a sexy freddy krueger although i may do that this year but (laughs) (laughs) but Uh, tamara you're you're being a bad influence again I'm trying. I'm very trying. Yeah. I actually saw. I actually saw that. The reason I said this is because I actually saw that. It's a, it's for for women. And it's a sexy Freddy Krueger Halloween costume. I'm like, are you wow, serious? Why? <laughs> it's, uh, it's truly horrifying. <laughs> right. Yeah. Halloween yeah, should be I, scary, not sexy. Well, it can be exactly. sexy, scary, I suppose. But. Exactly. Yeah. But it's just. Yeah. I totally agree. I felt. I felt that way for years, and I have never seen the Rolling Darkness review, and and I really hope one day to be able yeah. to do that because I actually mourn Halloween. <laughs> I, I no joke. Me too. And not only that, conversation full circle in a way. Mm-hmm. Mr. Dark's Carnival, that first story I wrote, that's oh, what yeah. it was about. Really? It was, it that was, was really, the it, that, that yeah. story is really about mourning yeah. Halloween yeah, and about, you know, a whole town that still does it and how great it feels playing around with that and playing around at the dangerous edges. Well, now yeah. I'm going to have to read that too. But yeah, no, I, the, the closest, the closest I've come is that I have, I have a, a personal tradition of reading um, scary Halloween centered books through October. I do that too. That, <laughs> yeah. It gives me That's that. That's what I read most of the yeah. horror fiction yeah. I read. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, um, especially so living in California, it's, um, mm-hmm. it's hard Living in Los Angeles, there's certainly not. I try to go to South Pasadena, where you know John Carpenter put Haddonfield, filmed Haddonfield, Illinois, for the movie Halloween, yeah. um, and try to drive down those streets to at least get just a little bit of the feeling. But God, uh, you know, I grew up in Detroit, Good idea. where there was real Halloween, and where there's you know it's hard where there's no trees and it's still, especially now, global warming, where it's still 93 degrees on October 31st. It yeah. really feels like the holiday is just sort of melting away. It does. It does. Yeah, and I seriously, works. yeah, I mean, I watch like, like the movie Halloween and you see that opening scene, you know, where the kids are walking down the street. That's yeah. what it used to be like. You know what I mean? And and it's just not like that anymore. I mean, we don't even get trick or treaters, nothing. It's crazy. But it, it's hard to explain to people 
who didn't experience that, how weirdly magical and wonderful and life-affirming uh, that all was. It truly was, it and that is that was beautifully it's said. Because go outside, exactly. and the leaves are turning, and they're starting to crinkle, yes. and they run down the street, and, and the you're smell of going up to in. houses in you know in the dark with neighbors who you yeah. like see only on that day, and yeah, yeah, yeah you know they have yeah. dead bodies in those houses. Right, they're yeah. all murderers. Yeah. Yes, but exactly. yeah, I went. I went. I went with uh, 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 my niece when she was a, a kid. They took her trick or treating, and I went with. And they did it at the mall, and it was just not the same. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. But, yeah. That's a, that that is a thing that people do now, and it, it's uh, yeah. That's a whole other conversation. It is. It is. So next time we have you on, we're going to talk about Halloween. We're going to try to bring Halloween back. Damn it! But, but I'm in. I'm so in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes. We're out of time. You're for one of tonight. our Halloween so, favorites, anyway. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> we're out of time for tonight, though. So, in closing, uh, Glenn, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and your work? Well, uh, there's a website with the really original name, GlennHirschberg.com, <laughs> um, and I try to keep that as updated as I can. Um, there are uh, good bu- uh, good girls pages uh, on Tor's site. Um, and it, you know the book is available through all the usual places, you know Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all that kind of stuff. And so, hopefully, you can go find out information there. I'm having a couple events in the next few weeks, so if you're on the West Coast, especially, please do come out. Starting tomorrow night with a little launch party at the Last Bookstore in downtown LA. So nice. Oh, that's nice. great. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Uh, thank you for being our guest. We love. Thank having you so much for on. having me back. It's always yeah. fun and easy with you guys. Yes, you uh, can fantastic. And it's with you, too. We can't wait yes, to have a freeway with you. I yes, have to exactly. do it right now, but we'll put it on the page. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I knew it up, didn't I? Yes. You asked for it. She always, she always says that, and she always says it to I the know. guys. And I'm always I like, <laughs> I've had the girls, too. I'm not Maybe proud. Maybe I don't want to have a freeway, but if you then I will. Oh, all right? <laughs> where Glenn just keeps his mouth shut and smiles. Yes. Yes. So we'll get him to open his mouth on the next freeway. Okay. We will. We will. All right. So we will be in touch. We're going to do that menage talk thing. And uh, (laughs) we'll see now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, This is Alistair Cross. You're listening to Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. And until next week, we wish you haunted nights and sweet screams. Thank you for listening. Good night, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross.